I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Today, I'm speaking with Liddy Clark, who's had an incredible career. She's done it all starring as an actor on Australian television, on the big screen, and was even a presenter on the iconic children's television program, Play School. In this episode, you'll hear about her love of the arts, the incredible impact she's had in her field, and how she became an accidental politician. Today, we're talking with actor, parliamentarian, unionist, cricketer, author, Liddy Clark. Liddy, welcome. Good morning. This may surprise you. I've done some research into you and my, what an interesting tapestry is your life. Born in Adelaide and your grandfather was McGarry medalist. Correct, correct, for Sturt. And what is it about Sturt? What are the characteristics of that club? Oh, well, you've got to remember, Steve, that I left Adelaide when I was two, but from how we were brought up, it was always the double blues. Now, baby blankets were the double blues. My grandfather, as you stated, was the McGarry medalist. And my father, who played a few games for Sturt, but ended up being an umpire. So I don't know about the characteristics of Sturt itself, but I do have a story about my father, who was an umpire for Sturt, and one day they were playing in the country or a bit, bit further out from where Sturt was and they were all on the bus. And after the game, my father apparently was so bad umpiring that match, they left him there. <laughs> they played their footy hard in those days, I would imagine. Oh, they did, they did. I suppose living in your father's footsteps of a McGarry medalist would have been a bit tough. So how was your umpire father and your parents uh, when you moved to Melbourne and to leafy Glen Iris and decided that a thespian and acting career would be uh, for you? As a girl, in inverted commas, for them that was fine. My brother wanted to be an actor as well, but that wasn't fine. Um, no, he had to go to university, whereas I didn't have to. Now, you can look at that at two ways, can't you? That, yes, supportive of my, my theatrical aspirations, but not supportive of women going to university. So perhaps that's where my um, union mentality began. Let's get to your union mentality soon. But you've got a, um, a noteworthy um, acting career with credits including Sullivan's, Prisoner. Apparently you were Kitty of Kitty of, and the Bagman. I was, but I did read an interesting quote last night about Kitty and the Bagman, which was, you know, it was huge for me. I went through an extraordinary uh, period of auditioning, you know, and people like Wendy Hughes, an adorable, you know, a mentor of mine, was up for this extraordinary role and there's this, you know, short redhead vying for the top dog. And, and I, it, it was a, a fantastic time. Again, it leads into politics, but we won't go there yet. Um <laughs> I mean, you know, it didn't do well in the box office. By the time we'd gone, we'd um, been around Australia to, to you know, say it was open and do all the, the media about it and then we got back to Melbourne and it was the Ash Wednesday 
where we opened and so that sort of put a nail in it. But I read an interesting quote last night from the director, Donald Crombie, who, whom I adored, but he said that Kitty and the Bagman shouldn't have been made. It was a bit of an aberration that only got made because we were flush with funds. That's when it became ridiculously easy to make films in Australia. There were better things we should have been doing with our time. I got slightly depressed at that. I thought it was a wonderful film, but, of course, it was in the halcyon days of film funding. I'm always interested in what's happened to Australian film lead and think really fondly of films like um, Spotswood, The Big Steel, Malcolm, that sort of part of the same era. What was happening then that enabled all those films to be made and what's happened since and where do you think we're going? Nowhere, really, quickly. Um, it's always been a struggle in Australia. That's why so many actors, you know, in the, the 50s went to England, 50s and 60s went to England. But in the 70s, gov- successive governments actually saw a potential and also there was they just thought it was a really important thing to do to support filmmaking not the arts in general but filmmaking and so there and there were a group of of really strong producers and also really strong scripts and there was I think the contracts it was a three a three a three something or other I, I don't have that in front of me that was government and that helped. And also in South Australia, you had the South Australian Government Fund that put money into into films. It, it was just a halcyon days, but it didn't last long. It didn't last long at all. And now we, the time when the the borders were open for international artists to come in and work in our film industry, and so therefore the actors lost the jobs, therefore the, the writers had to write sort of more generally, um, and so the Australian story got a bit muddied, and we're still struggling today. But meanwhile, Neighbours and Home and Away, and I think you've got credits on both. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> Have rolled on. Uh, can we talk about the ABC? But yes, no, I No, didn't. we will come back to the ABC. <laughs> Actually, no, I wanted to talk about Prisoner. And the f- those soaps, like Home and Away, they've been a mainstay for young actors. But you, I would beg to say there is a difference between an, a television actor and a theatre actor. Even though that's great work for a lot of people, they perhaps are not actors. Why do you say that? Because they didn't start in the theatre. I'm a purist. <laughs> and would they be able to? Well, of course, they do get put into the theatre now because they're names and, of course, theatre producers um, need names to put bums on seats and to get the general public into the bigger theatres. So they do use television. So maybe I'm talking through my hat. I think you're entitled to it. I am. <laughs> Um, Prisoner, you had two roles in four years. You went from being a Bella Albrecht, the child murderer, to... um... We like to say baby killer. Oh, sorry. Thank you. What happened to Bella? Uh, She was drowned in the basins in the bathroom, one of the prisoners. Excellent. (laughs) And then then another um, character four years later, a victim of... Oh, she was part of a, uh, a a sect, a religious sect. Her sister Sharon, um, a regular on prisoner, was inside, and then and um, I think her name was Flower Dale or Blossom Fairy or something. And she was part of the Moonies, a religious sect. 
I have no idea how she ended up in prison. I, I do not recall, Your Honour. <laughs> now, prisoner was an, is an interesting thing because it was so successful, but there were no residuals for the actors. You know, it had been going along swimmingly for years, but the, there were no residuals. So the, the actors were getting paid. Um, it was being sold internationally, but they were not getting no money. And that was a time when the actors actually came together as one and went on strike, prisoner went on strike to fight through their union, the MEAA, to get residuals for the actors and it worked. And, of course, you know, that, that it's been really big and some of those actors, you know, they were on it for so long they didn't do much else, but like the other soapies around. If you're on it, if you're on it for too long, that's it. You don't, you don't do any other work. So was that the catalyst for you to get involved in Actors' Equity? I'm not sure if that was the catalyst. It would have been one of the catalysts, yes. But, I mean, in when I joined Equity in, and now this is giving away everything, and life just, just passed, whizzes by, doesn't it, Steve? <laughs> but I joined Equity in 1973 when I got my first professional role in the theatre. I'd been doing amateur theatre up till then, only to, you know, assuage my mother's panic of me being falling off the, the rails. And in 1973, you had to be a member of the union before you worked. It's not like that today. So when did you go full-time with the union as an organiser? Oh, as an organiser, that that was when I was in in Brisbane. I'd gone up to Brisbane to do a series called Fire and I joined the local ALP branch when I was up there and when Fire finished, I was uh, offered the position as an organiser at MEAA which was fantastic. It was fantastic. Anthony Lennon was um, my mentor. He was uh, in the office in Brisbane in those days. And he took me under his wing and took me into all the mediations, took me around to all the negotiations. It was fantastic. Uh, it was it was really good. And then going around to all the theatres and, of course, you know, Movie World was really big then, so going there and looking after their... The, the people that work there and doing, you know, QPAT, Queensland Performing Arts Trust and all of those. It was really interesting and I loved the work. I, I wasn't there. I was only there a couple of years because then I went in after that to be uh, an advisor to the Arts Minister and Attorney General for the Queensland Government. Before we move to that phase, what changed for you in your first, say, month as an organiser with Actors' Equity? What were your wow moments? The actors and the and the the technicians and all of those people that were and are members of of the organisation of the union, and also for those, I mean, doing uh, enterprise bargaining agreements for people that really don't have a say, and that and this is for street performers and um, or something happening happening over an, on an island. You know, these are act, not normal jobbing actors you know, in the mainstream of acting. They are doing all these offside jobs to be an actor, to maintain their craft. And it was looking after them that was really fantastic. And going into BAT in the commission for for actors who have been poorly paid and poorly, um, yeah. Where's the, the value for the arts that would say that government and the corporate sector should invest, you know, beyond Opera Australia? I think, and you can notice it now in COVID, the, the closing down of all the theatres. Actors do it because they they are good at it and they like 
taking people to another realm. Acting and performing and the arts in general, and I include visual arts in that, and musicians, it is a social service. It is good for people. It helps people. They go to a show. They, they may not be theatre goers, and, but they go to a show because, you know, they've always heard about this book or they, they've heard about this performer and they go and it takes them out of their day-to-day lives and gives them something. It is a social service and it is critical that, that countries have the arts. If you look at the amount of people that, that support or go to the arts in one form or another, it is much more than those that go to the football. And yet all we're hearing at the moment during COVID is get footy back. I don't hear let's open the theatre doors. So that's a passion. What on earth would prompt you to move from equity to a role as a parliamentary or a ministerial advisor? I got to the stage when I left because uh, I moved from Melbourne to Sydney and from Sydney to Brisbane. I moved to Brisbane to do a show, um, to do fire. And I got to the stage now it could be I made this up and probably did. We always make things up for when we change things in our lives. But I'd got to the stage where I was, you know, getting on. I wasn't old. Um, but I was getting on and I didn't feel that there were enough roles for women. I didn't think that blah, 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 you put up all these things. And I thought, no, I need something more in my life. I need. I don't want to be an ageing actor with anecdotes. And, of course, the irony is I am an ageing, oh, well, I'm now an aged actor with anecdotes. But at that time I was using that as my thing to move into something different. I wanted to have something else. I didn't just want to be a, an actor, you know, clawing from day to day to get work. I mean, I, mind you, my career was fantastic, but it was in a, just in a certain years. So I used that as my excuse to move somewhere else. And also, you know, I had the, I thought by doing, I really loved politics. I was a member of the Labor Party. I was at that stage, I was vying for president of Labor Women in Queensland um, and this was all grist to the mill. But it was really fantastic. So I became the Arts Minister's advisor, junior advisor, and um, he was the Attorney General. And, of course, people would see me walking across the road from the office with a wig and gown, you know, a barrister's wig and gown. So everyone thought I was a barrister as well. It was very good. I didn't tell them otherwise. I was merely carrying the costume for the minister. So you moved on from that ministerial role to another one. Tell us about I that. It was a bit fraught being a, um, a ministerial advisor. I did that for 18 months. Um, and at that stage, I had then become president of Labor Women, which was the first time a, a non-factional woman had become president. Um, and then I was out oh, at a function, a, an ALP function, um, probably a fundraiser, I don't know, and um, with Wendy Edmund, and um, she was the then health, health minister. And um, I was there with a friend of mine, Jenny Menzies, and Wendy came over and said to me, we'd like you to run for Clayfield, and, uh, which is a seat in Queensland and uh, an electorate in Queensland. And I looked at her and smiled inanely and went, oh, <laughs> well, thank you. 
thanks, Wendy. And she turned away. And, of course, all the theatrical essence that I could summon, I screamed with laughter and fell on the floor um, and went, oh, dear, you know, me. So I went home because I am an actor. I was, I was flattered. My ego was flattered. Oh, I've been offered a role. How divine. But, of course, then I had to go home and really consider this. Now, Clayfield had been for 90 years at least uh, a Tory seat. No, it had never been in ALP hands. So they were offering me, a young woman, a non-winnable seat. Nice of them, very nice, pretty, pretty much what the Labor Party blokes do really. So I had to really consider that. You know, did I, this, this would take time. It's running a campaign. This is three years out from an election. Do I want to do it? Clayfield, I don't live in the electorate. I don't know the branches. I'm not factional. And it had to be more than an ego decision. So I talked it over with Jenny. She said, well, Jenny, who's, who's been my longtime mentor in everything to do with politics, said do not run for president of ALP women in Queensland. Do not run for the seat. So I did them both. Note to any mentors of Liddy Clark. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anyway, so I said yes, I would. I would do it, and I did it because I wanted to fly the flag for women, and I knew that I wanted to just make a. If I could pull the margin, that would be great. You know, I just wanted to make a, a small change. I knew it wasn't winnable. Liddy, what would have been the long game at the time if you were going to invest years in campaigning for an unwinnable seat? What's the long game for a, a quantitative and qualitative change? and to raise the flag for women. I did it for women, even though it was an unwinnable seat. But then, And that was in 1998 that I did that, um, which was an interesting time in 1998 because that's when Pauline Hanson reared her ed as well. So there was a vote against racism in it for me because the Liberal member had her second on the ballot. Pauline Hanson, and that did not sit well with um, small L liberals. So what happened in the election of 1998 in the seat of Clayfield? It was a 15% margin that I was chasing and we pulled it to five. And then you kept going? Uh, yeah, we pulled and we kept going. But it was, what was interesting about that is that I was also a member of uh, an organisation called Emily's List that had caught my eye years earlier when I was... Um, I just loved what they were all about, which is early money for women. It was it's an organised a labour organisation supporting women into higher office. And I before I'd even even thought about going into politics, I went along to one of their breakfasts and I was just blown away by them. So they were they supported my campaign. Um, Joan Kerner, um, the late beautiful, wonderful woman, Joan Kerner was my mentor as, as a, a, a young politician. Uh, for that, I was eternally am eternally grateful. But even then, when you're campaigning in a non-winnable seat, which is what I do now, because I'm a mentor now for women uh, running in to, for higher office, and I, and I really hold on to this. Emily's, as much as I adored them, and I do, and I still do, they would always say, here is the next member for Clayfield. And I go, you cannot introduce me as that because it ain't going to happen. You're going to give, if you say that to everyone, everyone, they're all going to get candidates' disease. They all think they're going to win. It is not going to happen. You've got to look at your seat and understand your seat. There is no way I would have been the new member for Clayfield. 
Uh, what you say is here is a woman who is going to bring change. That I support. But do not call me a winner when it's a non-winnable seed. So in 98, you pulled it back to a 5% margin, which presumably is in the winnable range. What happened after that? Um, well, then you do what's known as continuous campaigning, um, and which is really easy for me to do because I like being in the community. So that's not a hard thing. Even if you're elected or not elected, you keep campaigning from the day of the election till the next election. You continuously go to things, you're continuously out there, you're always talking, you're always being seen, you're always doing things. And so I started continuously campaigning. I have to say it wasn't hard because the sitting member was Santo Santoro, who was not terribly well liked by even by his own party, let me tell you. Um, so that was quite easy to campaign against Santo. Um, and again, so I campaigned really hard. We had Pauline Hanson. So I actually, in 2001, won the seat by 800 votes. Santo was flawed. He refused to acknowledge the defeat for some time, went to a recount, of course. Um, but that was an extraordinary win for the people, for the branch members of the party in Clayfield who had campaigned for centuries and finally to have someone get over the line, it was an extraordinary win. But it was not mine. Can I tell you, it was not mine. It was a vote against racism. It was a vote against Pauline Hanson that got me over the line. Lynn, if I go back a step, there also seems to be a common dynamic in with Labor of throwing a new candidate at an unwinnable seat on the promise of pre-selection for a winnable seat elsewhere? Not altogether true. Perhaps if you're a factional player, that may be the case. Um, got to remember I was non-factional. I had no support in that area. Luckily, I, my branches, who were all different factions, were, were fine because I was non-factional. Yes, you sometimes get um, off, you know, run in this hard seat and then we'll give you something that's winnable. But you can't really, you know... That's the thing about do you want to sit on leather or do you want to look after your community? That's the big difference here. You know, do you want to, do you want to sit on leather at all costs or do you want to actually make a difference in your community? And, of course, I'm not one of those. I haven't come up through the party. I haven't come up through Young Labor to say, I deserve this seat, give it to me. And I think that's in the Labor and Liberal and Greens and I think that's what's really wrong with our system is that ownership, oh, it's my turn. There were more women in the Labor Party nominated in non-winnable seats than ever before and they all won. We became the ginger group because <laughs> women started to rule. And once we were there, what were we going to do with our seats? Because I'm a, I was an accidental politician, Stephen, as I said, I didn't come up through the ranks. I was an accidental politician, for sure. I went in with the notion, and most members do, that, you know, you want to make some sort of change. You want to, you know, you, know, you can't bandy around that, you know, I'm for social justice, I'm for youth, I'm for all of those things. You've got to be really open to it. And all I wanted to do was fly the flag for women. I wanted to fly the flag for the arts sector, I wanted the arts sector to have a voice in the parliament. 
you've got to remember the arts is always an addendum portfolio, you know, as it is, you know, federally, you know, the name's not even on the door of the office. There is no arts on the arts minister's paperwork. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a shoe-in for the arts industry and I wanted to be a voice. I've got a big voice. Oh, do you ever? That's your theatrical <laughs> training. Lid, um, you were given the, um, the role as Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Where did that fit with your psyche in terms of what were you going to do with that and what did you think when you got that portfolio? Well, you'll have to take a few steps back, Stephen, as to why a young green politician was actually even offered a ministerial post over and above people that have been knocking on the ministerial door and saying, it's my turn, it's my turn, it's my turn. So why Again, would that be so? Because I'm an accidental politician and unaligned. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I think I was too green to have taken that position, but what happened was um, we'd been to another election. This was the one after 2004. And I, again, had won, you know, I think this time by 50 votes or something. I was up against Tim Nichols, whose father, Peter Nichols, was a numbers man for the Liberal Party and who, who said to me on the hustings, you know, I, oh, come on, can you let him win? I, I, I didn't pay all this money for him to go to university and just be a counsellor all his life. I said, thanks, Pete. I'll see, I'll see what I can do, um, which spurred me on no end. But so I, I, they were still doing the recount and Peter, was the, who was the Premier, Peter Beatty, was working out his cabinet. And, you know, it's a factional, it's a factional carver. It's not whether you're good for the job or not. It's a factional carver. That is the problem with our industry. That is the problem with politics. It's a factional carver. No matter what the party is, it is a factional carver. I'm in the electorate office, you know, with my shorts on and, not as far as going thongs, I would never wear thongs out, but I had, you know, smart shorts, smart sandals on and I get a, um, a call, a chain at my EA rank said, oh, the Premier's on the phone for you. I went, what? <laughs> so I'm there in my office with my feet on the desk, leaning back like, you know, I owned the joint and it was Peter saying, oh, look, um, I'd like you to come into the office. And I said, oh, righto, okay. Um uh, what uh, he said, I just want to put something to you. And I went, oh, okay. He said, and I want you to come in now. And I said, oh, righto. I went down into the bunker and I said, I'm here to see the, the Premier. And they said, yes, Liddy, we know that. And I go upstairs to the, the top level and there are all these factional people in the, in the outer area all waiting to go in and see, all whispering together, um, going, Desley and Mikkel, all they're going, whisper, whisper. And they turn around and look at me in my red shorts and sandals and go, what are you doing here? I said, oh, the Premier just wants to see me. Um, and I was ushered in and he and his Chief of Staff, Mr Whitten, were there and he said, now, Liddy, what do you think? What, what do you think if I said uh, we want you to be a minister? I stared blankly and I said, uh, my heart was pounding and I said, arts? And he said, no, arts is a senior portfolio. He said, we're in trouble here, Lid." We're in trouble. I, you know, I've got the factions beating down my door. I'm in trouble. I've got an impasse. You know, Lid, I've got, I've got equal numbers and there's one position left. They're killing me, Lid. They're killing me. I go, are they? Are they, Peter? Right, all right. You know, trying to sit up straight in my chair, trying to look tall. He said, so I'm thinking you. I love you, Lid. I love you. 
Whenever a Premier says they love you, you know you're in trouble. I should have twigged then and said no. Anyway, he said, I need a decision today. And I said, oh, what would be the portfolio? He said, you'll get all the support you can from me. I'll give you all the support you need. And I said, well, what is it? He said, I, I'm setting up a new, a new uh, portfolio. It's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander policy. That means it's a policy portfolio, which means there's no, no money attached to it. And I said, oh, I'll have to go and think about this. And he said, well, I need a decision and I need it in a couple of hours. And I said, righto. So I went back to the office and screamed and shrieked and then called my partner and said, can you come to the office? We need to speak. And I should have said no. But, you know, maybe it's my actor's ego. Maybe it's, you know, wanting to make a change. Maybe it's, maybe it's. But I said yes. They still hadn't, the count hadn't come in. I still hadn't been, my seat hadn't been declared. And he said, you're going to win, aren't you? I said, well, you're the one doing the counting. <laughs> You'd probably know more than me, Premier. So I, I became the minister. That was at a time before the Bridging the Gap reports. But you must have known with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that there were big issues to be dealt with. What were you going to do in the ministry? I just wanted to make a bit of a change. The issue with anything, everyone says working for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, that portfolio, everyone, and this is a really unattractive statement, I'm sorry to say this, but sometimes it's seen as a poison chalice. Now, Queensland is really decentralised and for centuries or for years, years and years and years, decisions had been made for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that did not serve them. We know that. When I went in, they were in the process of putting in alcohol, alcohol management plans. More than the bringing the home report, it was the alcohol management plans. So these were being, it had been done, the court case had been done, it was the implementation of the management plans. Now that was really difficult. But I have to say going I, I I got in the Govy jet as soon as um, I could and went and visited all these places, all these remote communities, and I learned on the run and I learned about the history of how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had been treated in Queensland in, in the remote areas. I learned about how the saltwater Aborigines had been moved in inland because the government thought, I want to set up a really U-Butte community. So, I mean, the fracturing of these communities and how alcohol was moved into these communities and that was just to make money for them because the, the government had, in their wisdom, years ago had decided they wanted to have councils to have Aboriginal communities that are doggers, deed, in, deed of grant territories, to actually have their own councils. But they didn't have a rate base because they didn't have houses. So how do you make money? How do you survive as a council if you don't have a rate base for your community? So they brought in grog. I mean, there were so many things that I learned and so many communities that I went to that were unbelievably fractured and so many communities that I went to that were just wonderful. And going to the Taurus, it was a great learning experience. So basically what I wanted to do was make a difference but not be one of these fly-in, fly-out government people. And that's how they see us. You fly in one and then in the next plane there's another government person. It was terribly hard but I, I got to make some really, really good friends. One woman came up to me at one stage and she said, she said, I'm sorry, Lily, I'm sorry to say this to you but you're the sort of politician that is going to give them a good name. I said, oh, thank you very much. She said, you are doing so much work. 
And of course, then I got into a huge amount of trouble as it went on. I don't want to stay too long on the huge amount of trouble. People can do their own um, research, but just to be quick, the Winegate affair related to a bottle of wine being taken on a government jet to the airport, the airport that was adjacent to an Indigenous reserve that was alcohol-free. The Crime and Misconduct Commission cleared you. Correct. Was it the Courier-Mail that ran the story on the first eight pages of the Saturday paper? 14 pages. Sorry, Liddy. What I'm really interested in, what's happened to ministerial accountability in the 15-odd years since? So you ultimately left that role over what would now be seen as trifling or opportunistic, what's happened to ministerial accountability? And where should it be? Ministerial accountability, you're actually at the mercy of the media, really, rather than your own accountability. I, 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 didn't, leave, I didn't leave because of that. I, lost, I left because I lost my seat. There, there's a big difference. But, of course, I was still um, hurting from, I, I mean, no, I, I was a minister that was up in front of two crime and misconduct commissions, not just one. So it's great fodder for the media. It's not, you know, I'd love to, I've, I've done some experimental writing around it because, you know, former politicians really shouldn't write books, so I'm doing it in an experimental way. But the accountability, I mean, you just have to be honest. The accountability is, you just have to say, you know, you cannot answer a media question by going around and round. You know, be honest Say it for what it is. Oh, I made a mistake. It wasn't what I wanted to do. In your electorate, the only reason you can stay is if you keep people informed. It's critical that people are informed of everything that's happening. If they're putting through a road, if they're doing something, if they're, you know, buying out buildings, doing something in the electorate that people are really uneasy about, you keep them informed all the way along. Whether it's good or bad news... If you keep them informed and you're honest with them, they will stay with you. We don't seem to do that in our ministerial positions. The media landscape's changed in the last 15 years um, to one of sound bites. Far more centralised media, you know, with the shift of Fairfax to the Nine conglomerate as well as the power of the Murdoch press. What's going to happen or what has to happen in the media landscape to achieve some greater balance or more insight into, I guess, the machinations of politics and an understanding of issues rather than quick grabs? Oh, look, that's very difficult, Steve. I mean, I'm just really lucky that in my time social media wasn't as profound as it is now. We were just starting to have websites then. We didn't do Twitter or anything. I'm I'm really pleased because as an actor I had a pretty colourful career. I didn't want any of that to come out. Um, but as my mother said, do they know you, Liddy? But I don't know how it happens now. The bite, I mean, in, in the old-fashioned way when it was all media releases and wireless, not that I, I mean, I came a long time after wireless, but radio, you could actually get it out and say it. But now it is the grab. So if you say something or you put something in writing, they will take out what is the most that's going to get people riled. It's out of context, totally out of context of what you say, but it's in something that you've said, so you said it. I can't see any way out of that. No, what gets measured gets done, so if it gets clicks, it'll be published, presumably. 
That's right. And for media, and, you know, like uh, I have to be supportive of the media in some way and the works that they do, but honestly they can be really destructive. Even the ABC 7.30, which to my mind has gone quite tabloid of late, I mean they re-show things in the media that will incite people. That is, that, that, that's, that's wrong. So who's doing good analysis? Where do you go for a good, fair-minded analysis of federal or state issues? Well, I think the um, Griffith Review is pretty good and they have podcasts as well. I think the Griffith Review are terrific. I like, but then, you know, someone will say, yeah, but you're a good old lefty because I like the Saturday paper because they're not just, you know, grabs. They are full articles, you know, so you can actually read something so that's that's where I would get it so tragically that's not looking like catching on at the moment how do you going back to your Emily's list role how do you mentor talented women to thrive in that environment uh, I'm just completely uh, open with them I go through the whole I've had a couple of successes which I really love it's really important for a mentor not to take over you actually have to just be there for them to to rant and rave or go, I'm I'm flailing. I don't know where to go. What I need to do, I liken a campaign to, to a rehearsal period in the theatre. So you get the role, you little ripper. Oh, they want me. You get the role. You're very excited. It's fantastic. You start your first week of uh, rehearsals. That's all fantastic. It's great. And the next week, oh, the director doesn't like me. I don't like the other actors. I hate everyone. The script's rubbish. Where do I go now? The next week, oh, God, it's just too hard. I'm so sick of doing this. I'm sick of the play. I'm sick of the people I'm with and it's not working and they just all hate me and then you go into the fifth week. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, if I do it that way, that's great. And you go through the rehearsal period up until opening night where you give all your energy to opening night. And then I say to them, so the day after the election, the election day you must, must enjoy. You've got to have a sausage at every booth. But you've got to really, really enjoy it and see it for what it is and and take it all in. It's a long day, it's a hard day, and then you've got the count. But you've got to remember the next day will be anticlimactic. Whether you win, lose or draw, the next day will be anticlimactic because you've given so much. So take the next day and breathe and then look at what has happened. So I, it, to me, it's a it's a, a theatrical analogy, a campaign. Lid, you've talked a lot about theatre. Um, you've talked a lot about um, speaking truth to power. We've had themes around equality. Where does a British private school game like cricket fit into all of that? Why are you now a cricketer? Per chance, everything is per chance. I live opposite a fabulous ground called Ramsden Street and they play cricket there and they've played cricket there for 50 years. I've lived here about eight years and and then one weekend I saw a whole lot of women over there, you know, hitting the ball around. I mean, I've done backyard cricket, you know, on a boxing day. Um, And I saw all these women running around and I went over and I said, what's happening? And they said, well, do you want to join? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to have a go. And that was it. And then, of course, I... That was with Ralph Saban, who who was organising it then and getting the women from around the community, and we we 
um, learned how to play, we learned how to pick up a bat, we learned how to throw, we learned how to do all those things about cricket, um, try to work out the names of the places because I had no idea what where silly mid-on or mid-off or any of those were. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. And then we played a little match between each other and got the local mayor down to present a coffee cup. And then I said to Ralph, so what happens now? He said, oh, I don't know. And I said, no, come on, we've got to make, we've got to, there is no women in this club. 50 years you've been around, there is no women. What the? And so we set up the um, Clifton Hill Women's First Eleven. So it's- and, and that was it. And that was, uh, that was four years ago. And um, in our, uh, uh, we joined a social Northwest Crickets Association. Um, we played spring and in summer we won the Shield and from then on we've been just winning, 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 winning and now we have two teams. We have the first 11 and the second 11. I'm now in the second 11. I'm getting a bit long in the two. But I had to support women into this club. They had no women on the board. You know, we were. this is a council land. Why aren't there women playing here? This is wrong. You call yourself a community club and yet you're 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 not using you're not utilizing the community. You're being blokes. That's got to change. And I, you know, muscled myself onto the board. So, <laughs> so lovely that you wrap your life into a cricket metaphor. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> hey, tell me in in your whole working career, funniest moment. Oh God, there's so many. I could go back to when I was really young. But anyway, when I won the seat of Clayfield. And Jane and I thought we'd go and have a look at Parliament House, you know, get acclimatised. So we walk in and get a, sitting there in this in the, the open area and and Jim Pierce came up. He was the member for somewhere up north. And um, he came up and he said, oh, hello, you're, you're Liddy, you're new, aren't you? And I said, yes, hello. He introduced himself and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm pissing in all the corners. He did not know where to look. He did not know what I was talking about. He stared at me blankly. I said, I'm just marking my territory. <laughs> That's far more parliamentary, Liddy. <laughs> Liddy Clark, it's been fabulous to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, today we've been talking to actor, politician, writer, cricketer and obviously raconteur Liddy Clark. Thanks, Lid. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.